Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Darren Ford. And Darren is a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified by the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists as a clinical supervisor of associate therapists. As co-founder of Sano Center for Recovery, he has integrated mindfulness into the treatment of those struggling with addiction. He has also worked with mentoring therapists in the utilization of mindfulness and the development of their private practice. He has recently founded the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training. In addition, Darren is a nationally recognized speaker and internationally published author. His books include Awakening from the Sexually Addicted Mind, A Compassionate Guide to Recovery, co-author to Transforming the Addictive Mind, and co-author to The Recovery Coach Client Handbook. And we're diving into the topic of mindfulness today because of the power it has to change how you think, act, and react. It's a powerful tool in your toolbox as you look for healthy ways to heal. And my next guest, Darren Ford, is going to explain exactly what it is, the benefits, and how to get started. You're going to love this conversation. Here's Darren. Okay, everybody, we have Darren Ford with us today, and you are in for such a treat because, you you know, we talk about a lot of ways to heal from betrayal physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and we have yet to speak about the benefit of mindfulness. So Darren is going to share all that and so much more with us today. Welcome, Darren. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored to be here. Uh, Thank you. So before we even get into it, Talk to us about mindfulness. What is it? And and what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? You know, oh, I think that's a wonderful question. And so first, you know, mindfulness is, well, first, before we even talk about mindfulness, I think I, I, we need to back up and first define what is mind, right? We hear, we hear the buzzword mindfulness all the time and you have to be mindful, but nobody really ever takes a moment to explain what the mind is. And so when you're viewing mindfulness, you really think of the mind as another sense organ, just like your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, and your skin. And you have the mind. And what the mind does is it takes in all of the information from your environment through those other sense organs. It organizes it, coordinates it, reflects on the past, and then spits out a hypothesis about your future. That hypothesis is never 100% correct. We can get close, but it's never 100%. And what mindfulness is, is just that seeing that hypothesis for what it is, not identifying with that hypothesis. So the ability to see our thoughts and our beliefs, but not be our thoughts and beliefs. And the practice of mindfulness is allowing ourselves to not be them or not identify with them. And that's a wonderful definition right there. And and I know I... I started a mindfulness practice a while ago and I did, I'll be honest, I did not stick with it because I remember just hearing that you're supposed to just sort of watch your thoughts like they're in a little cloud bubble. And I couldn't at the time, I would see a thought and then I would get emotionally involved with that thought. Mm -hmm. So what, what's the step? I mean, what, how do you prevent that? Is it just practice? Well, I think what you just described, right, when when you said I would see the thought and then I would see that I became emotionally wrapped up in it, right? That's the good news because you're seeing it, <laughs> right? It's when we don't see it and we just are lost in it 
that's right when we're not being mindful. So the moment we recognize that we're caught up in it, that is mindfulness. We realize that we're lost in our thought or we're lost in the emotionality or the, you know, and, and we see it and we're able to go, oh, oh, wait, I'm doing that again. Okay, now back to whatever my focus is, right? So that, that identification of, oh, I'm doing that again is the good news. That is mindfulness. Our mind tricks us though and says, oh, see, you're doing it all wrong. You just caught yourself not being mindful. So you're not being mindful. And it's like, well, but if you recognize that you're not being mindful, that's mindful. Wow. Okay. So I actually, I was doing it then. I didn't even know. But how, how do you stop? Because I guess that's it. We get, it's so easy. I find it's so easy just to get absorbed in whatever I'm doing and I'm not being mindful at all. How do we, what do we do when we're sort of headed down that rabbit hole? How do we recognize, is there a way to recognize that we're not being mindful and stop ourselves and, and, and actually be more present? What, what can we do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a couple, you know, there's, there's habits that have to be practiced, right? And that's why either, you know, people will talk about in the tr- more traditional old fashioned way of you sit and you kind of do this formal meditation. That's fine. But that's not really what, what I talk about. I talk about this idea of just incorporating mindful habits into your life. So doing um, small things like taking 30 seconds before you start your car as you sit there and to ask yourself, to check in with yourself, take a deep breath and ask yourself, what am I feeling? What are my shoulders like right now? Um, Things like that. In the world of recovery, we talk about sober moments, which is, you know, stop, observe, breathe, evaluate, and then respond mindfully, which can take anywhere from one to two minutes. So you start to integrate these these, um, small interjections of mindfulness into your life uh, in small little doses, not in these big formal old fashioned ways that that doesn't work for, for our busy lives. You know, it just, it does, it's not functional. You know, and I, I remember when I was, when I was in school and I just graduated last year, going back from my PhD, one of the courses that I had to take was a mindfulness and meditation course. And every week, you know, besides the papers and everything, we had to practice some sort of mindfulness activity. And I remember the week that it was, is it called walking mindfulness or whatever it was, but you had to be so conscious and aware of the act of walking. And it was this real slow walking process. But I'll tell you, I was so amazed when I really stopped to think about it. Wow. My legs just know what to do. My, my foot knows to land. And, and I was so amazed by what we just do so automatically and we're not even realizing it. it does, is that something that is a mindfulness practice that helps us? Absolutely. In fact, I tell people you can practice mindfulness standing, sitting, walking, lying, right? Uh, so in other words, you can practice mindfulness no matter what you're doing. Lying and, down, not lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lying down, not 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 be out of line. Yeah, big difference there, right? Um, Got a lot of sensitive people listening. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Um, and so, yeah, so walking, right? And or like, I I love to run. I'm a runner, so you know, I'll get on that treadmill and I run, and I practice my. That's my mindful practice. Then I I feel the weight distribution on my feet. I feel how my my feet are landing on the treadmill. You know, what my shoulders are doing, right? My breath, you know, taking those deep, deep breaths in 
as I, as I run to, to stay conditioned, right? But we can do that practice as, as formal as, okay, I'm going to run, or as lighthearted as, you know what, I'm going to walk from my car to the restaurant for lunch, and in that walk, I'm going to be very mindful. I'm going to put my phone away. I'm not going to have any electronic equipment for this, you know, next two minutes, I'm going to walk from my car to the restaurant, or even mindful eating. You, know, you take time when you eat, actually notice what the food tastes like. You know, I have uh, lots of people who, you know, struggle with addiction and, and like, uh, I'll have them when they, when they struggle with smoking cigarettes to be very mindful, you know, when they take a hit of the cigarette, keep the smoke in the mouth and ask themselves, what does this really taste like? Right. And all of them almost will say, you know, when I did that, it tastes terrible. It's horrible. And then they start to create this conditioned response of, of you to the cigarettes and then they quit. Wow. And I mean, studies on that. And I can see, though, how being mindful when it comes to your food, you'd enjoy your food so much more and you probably would be eating a whole lot less because you're, you're actually enjoying what you're eating. So Absolutely. talk to us about the difference between mindfulness and meditation, because mindfulness seems like you're supposed to be very present and concentrating on what you're doing, where meditation, you're supposed to sort of be letting go and not thinking of anything. Right. Yeah. So, well, there's there's um, many different types of meditation. So the meditation that you just described is is one of the most popular here in the West, and that's really like this idea of transcendental meditation, where you 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 know you kind of go to this other place and you clear your mind and you go to this other place. Mindfulness meditation, and I put that in quotes, uh, is not that right. It's becoming more aware of your mind, so moving into your to identifying the thought processes. And so, you know, in the formal type of meditation or traditional meditation, you would sit in a room or, you know, something like that where you would, you know, be, it would be very quiet. You would do this for 15, 20, even 45 minutes. A lot of the research that John Kapitzen has done is around 45 minutes of meditation a day. Um, and that, that, that's a way you know, that's a way to gain mindfulness, but it's not, a, it's not a very, in my opinion, practical way. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about mindfulness, I'm talking about weaving the practice of becoming aware of your mind into your everyday activities, right? So when you're in the car, turning off the radio and paying attention to what you're actually doing, you know, that you're actually driving, feel what the road feels like versus the traditional meditation where you sit in a silent room and you're dedicating 45 minutes to it and you're noticing your breath, identifying thoughts, coming back to breath, identifying thoughts, coming back to breath. I'm not saying that that's, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a negative view of traditional meditation, but that's not really uh, what, what I'm, what I try to argue, we try to explain uh, one of the interventions that we try to use in, in the academy that, that I have we, uh, when we train therapists on mindfulness-based addiction therapy. It's, it's helping an organic weaving of mindfulness into your everyday activities. And you know what I love about this? It's it seems like it's teaching us to be much more present. So we're not kind of numbly going through our days, but it also changes the brain doesn't it? I mean, it actually changes the brain. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. So, so first, I love what you said about presence, right? Because that's the byproduct of mindfulness, right? Is is presence, and we actually can see 
that idea of presence organically in the brain, right? So we know that um, people who struggle in, with addiction or who struggle with any type of compulsive behaviors, including like, you know, using your phone all the time, we actually see a degradation of the gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, which is a very, which is basically a, a, a medical way of saying the amount of ner nerve connections in your prefrontal cortex and your prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that represents the oldest part of self, right? So that reasoning, judgment, and responsible, the, the ability to see uh, the consequences of your outcomes or your choices, right? That's all in the prefrontal cortex. So we'll see with people who struggle with addiction or who have a exceedingly long internet usage, things like that, you'll see a, a degradation in, in those neural connections in the prefrontal cortex. And what we see in people who practice mindfulness is we'll actually see increased neural connections in that prefrontal cortex. We'll see richer, denser gray matter, which basically correlate, and this is on fMRI studies that are done by uh, Richard Davison out of the University of Wisconsin and several other people. And it's been pretty well established now that this is, you know, this is part of the neuroplasticity of the brain. And when you have those denser neural connections, you actually find that people have greater ability to pause before they impulsively react in situations. There are people who have, who have a denser gray matter in their prefrontal cortex are less likely to be involved in addictive or compulsive behaviors, things like that. And, and so we've seen all of that research and they're also more apt to be able to have what's called an equanimic or a, a, um, a neutral reaction to their emotions. So when their emotions arise, they don't impulsively react to them. They're allowed, they can, they, they can move into the feeling, but not lash out in response to the feeling. And this is the part that has been, are so important for trauma survivors. And, okay, so a few things there that you said. I, I, I've always heard that word equanimity when it comes to mindfulness. So I definitely want you to explain what that is, just so everybody knows. Neuroplasticity, I want you to explain that as well. And when it comes to, you mentioned something about being less reactive, the, 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 the more, um, I guess, when our prefrontal cortex is let's say healthier, stronger. <laughs> so, yeah. right. So now everybody listening here has been struggling to heal from a betrayal experience. How could mindfulness help them uh, be less? So what you're saying is mindfulness can help them be less reactive. Like let's say there's a trigger. Are you saying that they wouldn't react the same way or as quickly or as deeply or as something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not that they wouldn't feel the emotion connected to the trigger, it's that the way that they react to that emotion would be different or would be more constructive versus destructive, right? And, and so we'll, we'll, I'll talk about that, but let's back up first and, and let's talk about a couple of these things. First, uh, neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is an amazing thing. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's it just to this day, it baffles my mind, but it's also so exciting. When I you know, when I was being uh, taught at, you know, in, in school years ago, they said, hey, look, you're born with the brain you have, and that's it. And, you know, you, if you mess it up and you kill your nerves, there's never going to be any new ones that grow back, and it's all over with. And so that kept me uh, out of drugs for a long time <laughs> when I was younger, you know. But, uh, but we come to find out it was completely wrong. I mean, totally wrong. And neuroplasticity is actually our ability 
to develop new neurons or to create new neural pathways in our brain. And if you think about it, it makes total sense. When you're studying material, let's say academically, and you're reading something, what you're actually doing is you're creating new neuronal pathways, new nerve pathways in your brain. That's what helps you form memory. Same thing with behavior. So if you behave in a way that's impulsive, then you are more likely to behave impulsively in the future because the brain adapts and believes that impulsive reactivity is what's needed for you to survive. Mm -hmm. And this, for trauma survivors, right, when you think about trauma, what is, what is demanded of us when we've experienced trauma? What is demanded of us is quick reaction in order to protect and sustain our, ourselves, right? And so this right, happens, let's say we have a traumatic event, whether it's an emotional, an intense, short, you know, duration traumatic event or a traumatic event that's low intensity, but over a long period of time, the impact is still the same, right? We have that instinctual, I have to survive reactionary pattern that is created. We can actually see that in the brain in fMRI studies. And that, that's beautiful because that's what we needed to survive. But now that situation is over and we're in a different situation. So I'm going to stop you here because I just want to sum this up for everybody. So what this could represent is your, let's say, discovery day of your betrayal, whether it's by a family member, partner, friend, or sort of the death by a thousand cuts, which could be your getting out of a relationship with a narcissist. Correct. Is Absolutely okay? correct. Right. Okay. And the impact of that trauma is the, the exact same. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now you're out of that situation, but your brain and your and now your mind because of the way your brain has adapted and, and we can talk about what comes first the the brain adaptation or the mind and, and that's still a point of debate but I have my biases um, however you're not in that situation but your your mind and your brain are saying well we needed this reactionaryism to survive in the past so that's what we need now because that helped then right? But the situation, the environment has changed and we don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. So we find ourselves reactionary to situations that don't call for it. And then we project self-judgment because we're reacting to our sense of shame and we start to question our own perception of reality and start to question ourselves. And we go into the spiral as trauma survivors down, 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 down and feel less and less self-efficacy, less and less self-control, less, you know, and more and more judgment. And then we, 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 this creates a spiral of, of more and more kind of not trusting ourselves, grasping outside of ourselves for help. And then we suffer even more, which causes a feedback loop because the brain says, oh, we're in trauma again. We need to create more of these reactionary neural pathways. And then it just becomes, a, a the big word is reciprocally deterministic relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So the cause and the effect become a loop that perpetuates that, that trauma cycle. Now I can see this being the perfect point for addiction. Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's that, and, and addiction definitely arises out of that, right? Because it's all, addiction's all about, you know, distraction. It's all about you know detaching from the discomfort of the moment and trying to survive. 
you know. So, so here now, and just to unpack this a little bit, we have our trauma, whether it was our betrayal experience, whether it was just, you know, that, like I mentioned before, the death by a thousand cuts sort of thing, we've created uh, this survival type behavior. Now we can be out of the experience, but we've conditioned ourselves into behaving this way. Now we're so uncomfortable with the way we're feeling that we need some relief and we find some sort of addiction. So get us out of this mess, Darren. What do we do? Yeah, yeah. that's great, right? And so, it, well, there's one aspect too that we that we didn't that that is still left out that, that I want to clarify. Right, the more we participate in reactionary relationships to our emotions, the more our emotional distress tolerance muscles degradate. Right, so the more that they atrophy, and the more that they atrophy, the less emotional impact, the the less emotional energy it takes to cause us to become reactionary, right? So the level of emotional distress, even if it's lower than what it was before, will cause a higher reactionary response, if that makes sense. Okay, so so to sum that up, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's like we've had it and we just don't have the tolerance that we had previously. Correct, and so we go through our lives and then that, that we've had it part, comes to to the surface quicker and quicker and quicker. And we, we have less and less tolerance for emotional distress. Like a shorter wick. Yes, yeah, shorter for you, shorter <laughs> Okay, okay. Okay, now, so we're in this mess and we're like, oh my God, what do I do? Like, how do I get out of this? Well, the first step in that is first recognizing that it's not you. It's the mind that has created this coping mechanism. You are the observer of this mind, right? You're the thing that sees your thoughts, that sees the, the mind's reaction. You're the one that has the ability to see that. And then once you see it, you can make a choice. I'm not saying that's an easy choice. I'm not saying that when you choose not to react in the addictive, compulsive way, that you won't feel a lot of emotional distress. You absolutely will. However, that's what's needed. And there's a very famous saying in Buddhist psychology, which is, if it's in the way, it is the way. Oh, I love that. If it's in the way, it is the way. So if if our mind, if we're in in trauma recovery or an addictive cycle, and our mind says... I don't want to feel this or I don't want to go to this meeting or I don't want to go to therapy or I don't need therapy. For example, if we're a partner, right? I don't, I don't need therapy. It's there. It's the addict. I don't, I don't need it. It's all them. It's like, well, you've experienced trauma. So the mind is defending against your, your, emotional distress related to that. And by going to therapy, you're moving into that emotional distress, which is enormously uncomfortable. And, and the recovery of that trauma has, it, it was caused by the addict's choices. Right. So how do we know if it's the mind sort of, not playing tricks on us, but it's helping us in its own way, if it's the mind or if it's our highest wisdom telling us what we need? Yeah, I think by, by, 
really practicing getting to know what the emotions feel like, how they show themselves in our body and our lives, to really move close and have an obser observational relationship to our thoughts, our, our feelings, our thoughts, our beliefs, our behaviors, our habits, right? And I often tell people, right, emotions, emotion, they, mo they move us, right? They're an unconscious feeling. So they, they drive our thoughts. Our thoughts coalesce into beliefs. Mm -hmm. Our beliefs manifest into behaviors. Our behaviors are practiced into habits. And our habits become our destiny. And so if we are able in anywhere in that in those five steps, if we're able to interject mindfulness, we pretty much sabotage the, the um, reactionary habitualized habits, right? And then we're able to get to know our mind very well. And then we can identify, is this our wise mind or reactionary mind, right? But that takes time. And it takes consistency, and most importantly, it takes self-compassion. And, and I love that you said that because compassion is something that we're so often we're really not that great at, especially if we believe what, you know, we, we believe the betrayal was, even though it was done to us, we believe it's about us. Then we're not as good at the compassion piece. Right, right. And so it's so important, right, what you said, we think it's about us. There's that, there's that identification, right? We have pain. We identify that, oh, this must be my fault, right? Because if we blame ourselves, we have some sort of power, right? Um, and Or it, that, that this is because I'm not enough or because I don't look good enough or because, you know, they, they're acting out in their, in their sexually addictive ways because I'm not smart enough, I'm not cute enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough. But it is in no way because of the way I look or the way I am. It's because they, you know, have their own issue. And so, you know, there's, there's that component, right? And when we, when we can separate that identification, we, we start to heal. And I, you, you had asked me a question, I lost the second half of that question. Equanimity. Equanimity. There it is. Yes. That's, that's right. So now we come into this idea of what is equanimity, right? And what is equanimity? And I say in my book, Awakening from the Sexually Addicted Mind, A Compassionate Guide to Recovery, I talk about equanimity as if there was a goal to any type of recovery, this would be it. Now, a lot of people in, in addictive world will say, absolutely not. It's sobriety and, and, and how dare you, right? And I think that sobriety, spirituality, all of these things organically arise out of this idea of equanimity. So what is equanimity? Equanimity is a awareness to the emotional energy without an impulsive reactivity to it. It is not suppression of that emotional energy. It is not withdrawal from it. It is not in any way anything like that. So an equanimic person is a person that is the calm in the eye of the emotional storm. They feel it. They see the winds and the tempest and the currents and the chaos, and they're able to stay completely focused and present in it, even though they have a lot of distress, right? Right. And if you think about as a, as therapists, that's 
what we do. That's our goal as a therapist, right? To bear witness to the struggle of the other person's suffering, to be present with them in their hour of need. And in order to do that, we have to be able to see our own emotional response, but not react to it, to see it. And this is equanimity. And out of that arises all of these beautiful things, the ability to foster connection, compassion, intimacy, you know, all of, all of these things arise organically out of that. This is a tall order. I've been practicing mindfulness obsessively for, you know, decades. I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, so, I love that you said that because I just, the little bit that I delved into it when I did, it was really, really challenging. I can so see the benefit and you, you explained so many, you know, you explained it so beautifully. It's so worth it to try it again, but I'm glad you said that it takes time because, uh, you know, it, it sounds very challenging, but so worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. And this is where compassion comes in, right? And I often tell people compassion is a verb. It's not, you know, it's not a noun, it's action, right? And, and in, in um, one of my other books, I, Transforming the Addictive Mind, I talk about how, uh, there's this woman who, there's a story, if I can, if you'll indulge me very quickly, but it illustrates compassion. Mm-hmm. So she heard a knock on the door and she went to the door and the, the police were there and she said, oh God, what has he gotten himself into? And I'm paraphrasing the story, but you know, what has he gotten himself into now? And the police officer said, you know, Miss Smith, I'm so sorry to tell you, but your son has, has passed away. He's been killed. Um, he was shot in a gang shooting and, you know, things like that. Well, she was obviously devastated and she went to the, the trial and the, the perpetrator was a 14-year-old young boy who, who killed her son, who shot her son. And, you know, she stayed through the whole trial. And at the end, the uh, victim's family always has the opportunity to share something. So she stood up and she looked the, general, uh, the young boy in the eye and she said very clearly in the courtroom, I am going to kill you. And of course, everybody in the, in the courtroom was like, oh my gosh, you know. So as time went on, she started visiting this kid in jail and she started buying him toiletries and buying him things because nobody came to visit him. He had no family, nobody. Once he turned 18, he got out. She asked him to come live with her and he agreed because he had nowhere to go. And, you know, she started to care for him and she you know, taught him how she, as he got older, she taught him how to, you know, pay bills and get a job and ethics and, you know, all of these things. And then one day after time went by on his 21st birthday, she sat down as he was eating and she looked at him and she said, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I would kill you? And the boy just froze in fear, you know, mm-hmm. and he his spoon down and he said, yes. And she said, well, I did. The boy who could have shot, who had all of the anger that could have shot my son is now gone. And now what stands before me is an honest, honor, honorable, a hardworking, responsible young man. I want to know if I can adopt you as my son. Oh, my gosh. That is a true story. Wow. That really happened. That is compassion. Compassion is the action of a, and believe me, that woman, each night when she went to bed and the perpetrator of the murder of her son was in her home and in his room, she was angry. 
And she was, you know, she felt those emotions, but she didn't react to them. And this is for those of us who've experienced betrayal. We want to be able to forgive oftentimes. Like we'll say, you know what, I forgive you. We'll make the marriage work. But what we're actually saying when we say I'll forgive you is we're saying I will work and be present with in a compassionate manner those really, really uncomfortable emotions that I'm experiencing. I will ask for help so that I can figure out a way to work with this so that the relationship we have will continue. And like you said, it, it, and I found in doing this work, it is the death of the old and, and the yes. rebirth of the new. It is never the same marriage, never the same two no. people. Yeah. yeah. Darren, yeah. You, you have given us such a gift today and, oh. and really shed so much light on, on a much needed topic. Where do we go to learn more about you? Yeah, so there's uh, several ways. I'm, oh gosh, I'm doing so much. So I have, you know, the, which I'm doing with, with the amazing Mari Lee, who I, I just have to give a shout out to. She is an incredible coach. Uh, and a wonderful coach. guest. We had a, we had a great interview. Oh. oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just incredible. I just bow to her wisdom um, over there at Growth Counseling Services. But for me, uh, I, I own uh, Sano Center for Recovery, which is a treatment center that we work with sex addiction and other addictions and also betrayal. Uh, we have offices in Newport Beach, California, Long Beach, California, and West Los Angeles. You can also, I own a publishing company that uh, specializes in, in working with people in the mental health field for all of those people that had the dream of writing a book. We walk you through it shoulder to shoulder from concept all the way to shelf. And we will, we will guide you through the whole process. Um, and then the most important jewel in my crown right now in my, is, um, is the, the Mindfulness Academy for Addiction and Trauma Training, or TMAT. It's T-M-A-A-T-T.com. That's T-M-A-A-T-T.com. And TMAT is an um, academy that is uh, certifying people in mindfulness-based addiction therapy, or MBAT certifications. And to learn more about that, you can sign up for our uh, for interest lists or our waiting list there at tmat.com. And there's all kinds of information about, about that. And that's those are the, the things that I'm, I'm doing. Those so are some I'm, amazingly important resources. And everybody, I hope you listened. And what I'll do is I'll share all of that in the show notes as well. Darren, again, thank you so much for your uh, your compassion, your wisdom, and all you brought to everybody listening today. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Holy moly. Darren shared so much great information on how our brains handle trauma, leaving us with a shorter fuse, although he explained it much more eloquently than that. <laughs> Stay in touch with Darren by going to tmaatt.com and we'll have all of his information in the show notes at pbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. Trauma can easily lead to addiction because we're trying to escape those painful emotions. But as Darren shared in that beautiful Buddhist psychology quote, if it's in the way, it is the way. Wow. I also love that story he shared about that woman whose son was killed. What an incredible example of compassion and transformation. So many great nuggets. I hope you love this episode as much as I did. Now, 
it's time for a gift. Head over to pbtinstitute.com and receive my gift of How Your Biggest Crisis Reveals Your Greatest Gift. And let us support you. Go to Facebook and join our group, Women Hacking Betrayal, where we give information, tools, and support to help you move forward and heal once and for all. Can't wait to be with you next time. And here's to your breakthrough. Breakthrough.